Well, I'm delighted that I'm able to <clears throat> speak today. I'm sorry that it's when Chuck is so ill, but we continue to pray every night for his complete healing, and hopefully he'll be back before we finish the Gospel of Mark. <laughs> so today we're going to look at Mark chapter 4, and I'm going to kind of read this in chunks, so we'll start with the first nine verses, Mark 4, verses 1 through 9. Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat on it in the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was listening, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. <clears throat> well, the Gospel of Mark up to this point has described the incredible popularity that Jesus enjoyed. Everywhere he went, there were huge crowds that wanted to see the miracles he performed and listen to his teaching. In verse 1, it says a very large crowd gathered around him. In fact, a little earlier, it said the crowd was so large that he was in danger of being crushed by them. So Jesus got into a small fishing boat and rowed a little bit out off, off of the shore where the crowds were kind of thronging around. And then he was able to speak to them all without uh, getting crushed by the crowd. But the ministry of Jesus was very polarizing. Not only were there the crowds that loved to hear him teach, but there were many people that opposed him. His own family thought that he had gone crazy. And you imagine your brother saying, I'm the son of God and you have to believe in me to be saved. Um, in addition, there was rising opposition from the religious leaders of Israel who accused him of performing his miracles by the power of Satan. So the question this passage asks in the midst of all these different viewpoints is how does a person know that he's saved? What are the characteristics of a person who will enjoy eternal life in the kingdom of God? So this is a really practical question. A lot of people ask this today. Now in our own culture, it's easy to kind of confuse the idea of what a Christian is because a lot of people take on the name of Christian whether or not they're actually saved. Um, there's a lot of surveys in which it's been shown that people given a choice of religions, many people will just check off Christian because it's like, well, I'm not an atheist, so I'll just go with that one. That's one I recognize. So it doesn't always necessarily mean anything in these surveys. And there's some people that follow a type of cultural Christianity that has very little to do with the salvation that Jesus Christ is offering as a miraculous work of God. They think that Christian involves um, how you vote, 
your certain uh, social views, whether you go to church regularly, or maybe being very generous in your acts of charity. And they sort of identify these particular behaviors as being Christian. But in this passage, Jesus answers this question in a different way. And we're going to see that he uses a form of teaching known as a parable. So a parable is a story that teaches a spiritual truth by drawing a comparison to something either in nature or a situation from everyday life. Now this parable describes a common method of farming that was used in the time of Jesus. And they didn't have the big heavy equipment that we have now that make it so much easier. So if somebody had a field, they'd take a bag of seed and they'd just start casting the seed out onto the ground. And I've tried this, by the way, with overseeding my lawn. And you get some spots that grow really well and some spots that don't do that well. So, but that's basically how they sowed things. So the responsiveness to the seed depends on where it lands. If it lands on a rock, not much is going to happen. Um, if it uh, lands in fertile soil, then it will germinate. And um, so the seed then represents the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus describes four kinds of soils that represent different responses to the gospel. So the primary function of this parable is to challenge people to unconditionally accept Jesus' teachings, which will result in a transformation of their life. So the transformation is the work of God because the seed represents God's word. So if it's implanted in your heart, then it's God himself that changes you. And sometimes people get confused with the way you're saved versus the evidence for salvation. So the evidence of salvation is this transformed life. It's not that you're saved because you do all kinds of good things, but the moral transformation you experience is something that God does. And that's the fruit or the grain, the evidence that there's life. So another way to describe this parable is this. The parable describes many ways that a person can be lost. But only one way a person can be saved. So there's four soils, three of which do not produce a crop. So from the perspective of a farmer, they're useless, right? You don't plant it unless you want to see the grain come. And so the only one that produced a crop was the good soil, and that's the person that was saved. Now, before we kind of decode this parable, I want to just give you a bit of a background on how parables work, and then some guidance on how to properly read a parable. So a parable is a type of story that is used to teach a spiritual truth by comparing something in nature or everyday life. So it's a type of comparison. And when you think of a comparison, there's two ways you can do it. One is a direct comparison, which is called a simile. If you remember English class, you remember those similes and metaphors? So a simile is where you say, this is like that. So Isaiah said, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. So that's a way of comparing our tendency to wander into sin. And 
That's a direct comparison. And some parables of Jesus are like that. So he'll begin a parable by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he'll tell a story. And that story as a whole teaches us some characteristic of the kingdom of God. But there are other parables like this one that are implied comparisons. So Jesus kind of just began telling the story, and then you begin to realize after a bit, oh, this isn't just a story. I'm supposed to learn some spiritual truth from this story. So those are the two broad types of parables. But in most of Jesus' parables, the key thing to realize is the story as a whole teaches something about the things of God. But what you don't want to do is overanalyze it and pick at the little details because a lot of the details are more about scenery, kind of creating the scene and the story setting and that sort of thing. So we'll look at some examples of how that works. But before I get into that, let me just mention that there are many types of parables. And in fact, the Greek and Hebrew words for parable can cover everything from one-line um, proverbs all the way up to extremely complicated stories. So an example of a very simple parable that's only one line was in the passage last week in Mark 3.24. And in that passage, Jesus said, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. So that's called a parable in, in the previous verse. Now, it's not what we usually think of a parable because we think of a story. But if you think about it, it's, there's no action here, but it's kind of comparing a situation. So you imagine a kingdom and there's internal division and then some enemy comes. Of course, they're not going to survive unless they unite themselves against the enemy. And he's using that to teach something about how Satan doesn't cast out demons because that would undermine his own work. Okay, so that's an implied comparison. But it's very short, not much drama to that. And then you have, on the other end, parables like um, the prodigal son, which has a lot of characters and a lot of drama and several scenes, and that's a very complicated one. And then in the middle, you have sort of things like this parable, which, you know, is, is kind of a major one big idea. Um, now, the number one mistake people make when interpreting parables is to try to make everything represent something. So the big question you hear people ask when, when you read a parable is, what does this mean? And in a way, that's the wrong question. Because in any comparison, you're actually only looking at one big thing. So let me give you an example of that. Let's, let's not think about story parables. Let's just think of a simple comparison. When Isaiah said, all of us like sheep have gone astray, he's not talking about if human beings have curly hair. That is not the point. That's a characteristic of sheep, but that isn't what he's interested in. He's not talking about how sheep kind of gather in flocks, and so that means, oh, humans like to be together. That's not the point either. There's all kinds of characteristics of sheep that are not of interest in this comparison. All he's interested in is that sheep tend to wander and get themselves into trouble. So they find, hmm, this is an interesting piece of grass, and then the next thing they know, they've kind of gone down this cliff and they can't get out of a hole. And, and human beings do that too. 
you know, we find some attractive sin and then we follow it and we get all wrapped up in it and then we realize, I can't break free from this. It's become a habit and it's, it's very forceful in my life. So it, it's a comparison to our tendency to sin. And that's it. So that's a simple comparison. But now let's take that concept and apply it to a parable. So in a story, what you're looking for is the big idea. A, comparison, uh, a parable is an extended comparison in which there's one big truth, and there might be kind of supporting points, but it all kind of points to one thing. So most of the parables flow from the logic of what is being compared. So for example, the, Jesus tells a number of parables in which there are wedding feasts. And the wedding feasts almost always represent eternal life. And the reason is, if you think about a wedding feast, this is fun. This is a happy time. Everybody's celebrating. It's like for that couple, like this is the best day. So if you say that represents the marriage of Christ to his people, we're the bride of Christ, then it's just natural to say, wow, think about the celebration there's going to be when we're with Christ. And that's a natural kind of point of comparison. But there's a lot of details in those stories that don't really mean anything. So you, you look for the big idea. Um, here's another example. You're probably familiar with how uh, a shepherd had 100 sheep, and then one of them got lost, and the shepherd leaves the 99 behind to find the one. And sometimes people say, well, what about the 99? What do they represent? What's the point of the 99? Why did he abandon them? Things like that. They ask all the wrong questions. The point is that he sought out the one that was lost and he rescued him. So Jesus seeks the lost and saves them. And there's other things in the story like the grass and the shepherd's house and the fact that he puts the sheep on his shoulders and all these things. They don't really represent anything. It's part of the scenery to create a setting in which you can create the point. Okay, so be very cautious about the interpretation of symbols. So to, to recap here, there's a few things you should bear in mind. The first is look for the big idea and don't overanalyze the details. So let me give you an example of a parable which will really get you some bad theology. And by the way, if you overanalyze parables, you're ready to start a cult, I can tell you. <laughs> so there's a parable Jesus tells in Luke 18 where he describes this judge, and he actually says there's this unjust judge. Now, you know this isn't going well. And there's this woman that's trying to get legal protection from her opponent. So she goes to this judge, and the judge is like, eh, you're not rich, couldn't care less about you. And he says, I don't fear God, and I don't respect people, so I'm not going to pay any attention to this woman. And then the woman keeps asking and asking and asking until he finally gets so annoyed at her that he gives her what she requests. That parable is a parable about prayer. Now, if you overanalyze that, then, well, first of all, God is unjust. 
and he's annoyed when we pray, like we're irritating to him. And he only answers our prayers because he just wants to get us out of his face. That's the theology of prayer that that parable teaches. Right? Anyone want to join my cult? <laughs> so, the point of that parable is, this is a scene people knew from everyday life where someone had to persist to get what they wanted. So the point of the parable is simply that we should persist in prayer. We should keep asking. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. And the line before the parable, Luke actually helps us with this because he says, Jesus told them a parable to show them that they ought to always pray and never lose heart. And then the story begins. So it is simply a scene from everyday life of persevering to ask for something. So all the details are just creating drama and interest in a setting, but they have nothing symbolic in them. So look for the big idea, and then be very cautious about how you decode certain symbols. So here's the biggest hint I can give you about that. Many of Jesus' parables were told by other rabbis in the first century. There are <clears throat> collections of these parables and sayings of famous rabbis, and, and they were familiar to people. But Jesus often threw a little twist in them. He'd take a story they knew, and then whoop, something just happened here, and then they're like, whoa, that was a surprise. And often the little surprise is the point he's making. Now, that doesn't happen in the parable we're studying, but that's something to watch for. And because the rabbis commonly used these symbols, Jesus could tell a story with those symbols, and people know immediately what it meant. So this is what scholars call stock symbols, something that everybody knows and everybody uses. So, for example, whenever you see a king or a judge, that's God. You know, piece of cake. Um, in our parable, the seed always represents God's message. And sowing meant to proclaim God's message. And this is true in Isaiah and other places where there's a reference to sowing the message of God. And that is then the harvest is the day of judgment. Right? So the harvest is always when uh, either there's salvation given to the people of God and eternal life or judgment on the wicked. So everything's kind of sorted out on the day of judgment. And, and those are stock symbols. Another stock symbol is birds often represent Satan. Now, that isn't always the case, but it's kind of the place you start unless it doesn't fit. So you start with these stock symbols, and if you read any commentary, study Bible, they're going to tell you this is a symbol that was commonly used for something like that. So the only time you look for more than one point is if the storyline is really complex, such as the prodigal son, there's several scenes, and once you get lots going on, lots of action, different scenes, then you start to say, maybe there's more than one point here. But in this parable, the sower, there are really four stages, right? Because the sower sows, and then there's four seeds, or four soils, and there's four responses. And so these four actually work together to create one big point. They kind of re uh, reinforce the main idea. So the way that I summarize this is, 
the message of God has different responses, but the response that God is looking for is accepting the message as true, and then that changes a person's life. And that's the big idea. So there are three soils that are non-productive. These are three ways to fail. You know, three ways to be lost. Um, but that's not what God is looking for. God is looking for people whose lives are transformed by the gospel. So there's only one way to be saved, three ways to be lost. And Jesus could have used other examples, but these were common ways in which the word of God doesn't transform a person's life. Well, you now have a uh, one unit of credit in seminary, you know. <laughs> just had a little mini course in parables. All right, so let's get back to our parable. We have a great advantage here because Mark recorded Jesus' interpretation. And it's like, whew, easy. Jesus interprets. That helps because we're not going to go off the rails if Jesus tells us the answer. Um, and I think that what Mark does is provide interpretations for those parables that are particularly difficult or you might likely go astray. So he kind of gives guidance that way. And Matthew does the same thing in his parables. So let's read what Jesus says the interpretation is. The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. So as we said, this is a typical farming scene. The farmer scatters seeds, and then there's a variety of responses depending on where the seed lands. So the seed represents the gospel message, and Jesus simply says the seed refers to the word, which is a shorthand commonly used for the word of God. <clears throat> Matthew's version kind of amplifies a little bit, and he says it's the word of the kingdom, meaning how does a person enter the kingdom of God, and what are the results of that? So this is all just another way of saying the gospel message. Jesus does not interpret the sower. Now that's interesting, because in the situation, of course, it's Jesus that's proclaiming the message of God, and it's all about how people respond to Jesus. But the principle applies to anyone that proclaims the gospel. So whenever you tell somebody about Jesus, you're sowing the seed of the word of God. And then the response that people have to that message depends on what's in their hearts. And so it's not the seed that's at fault here, the gospel is powerful to change lives. The reason the gospel sometimes doesn't work is a person is resistant. Something is in their heart that's preventing them from accepting the gospel. 
So the focus on this story then is on the four soils because they're the ones that determine the productivity of the gospel. So the parable calls people to wholeheartedly accept the message of God which will lead to a transformation in their lives. And so this is fundamentally an evangelistic parable because Jesus is calling people to accept the message is true. And we know this because the last line of the parable was a little aphorism that Jesus likes to use, and that is, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, when Jesus says something like that, you ought to really pay attention. He's saying, this is important. You've got to get this. If you hear this, you need to pay attention to it. So we can use hear in the sense of, yeah, yeah, I hear the sound, or I'm listening, right? You're really paying attention. And the Greek word actually has overtones of accepting something as true and responding to it positively. So you accept it as true, and then you do whatever it is that it says you're supposed to do. Um, so the four types of soils represent different responses. And it's interesting that the word here is repeated on each one. So it keeps saying, this person hears the gospel, but it doesn't bear fruit, and here's why. And then the last one, the good soil, hears the gospel and receives it as true, and then they bear fruit. So it's only this response of faith in the gospel that results in salvation. There's all these other ways to be lost, but only one way to be saved. So the focus is really upon how are you saved, and that's by accepting the truth of the gospel. So let's look at these four soils. The first one is where the seed falls on a path. Now it sounds weird to us, you know, because we have cars and we don't mind going a little out of our way to get somewhere. But when you walked everywhere, you would take a shortcut. And if there was some farmer's field, you'd just cut right across it diagonally because it's the fastest way to get somewhere. And people would tend to take that same route all the time and then the ground gets trampled down by people walking over it and carts and so on. And it's hard-packed soil. So if seed lands on that soil, like it's not going to germinate because it's, it needs to be in the ground and get some moisture for it to live. So that soil will not be productive. And Jesus says the birds come along and eat it. And I know how that works. I mean, there's, there's this spot in my grass where no matter how much seed I put there, the pigeons come along and say, hey, free buffet. <laughs> and there's something about it. It's also got a bunch of rocks, so maybe that has something to do with it. So the hard-packed dirt represents a person who just hears the gospel message but doesn't do anything with it. And here's the thing. If you hear something from Scripture and you ignore it, you're in a very dangerous place. And Jesus says what happens then is that Satan comes along and steals the word of God out of the person's heart. So you hear it and ignore it, and that creates an opportunity for the enemy of God to work. And what Satan does is in place of the truth of Scripture, he says, hey, here's another idea. And he kind of suggests a lie. And if you ignore the word of God, then the lie sounds awfully much more appealing. 
see? So initially, the problem was the soil itself wasn't ready to receive the seed, so that created an opportunity for the birds to come along and eat it. And, and that's what happens in a person's heart. If, you're hard, if your heart is so hard that the gospel message does not penetrate, then Satan can steal the word of God and you become susceptible to the enemy's lies. So that's the, the first way that you cannot be productive, that the word of God will not change your life. The second way is described as a soil that is rocky ground. So in many places in Israel, the topsoil was so thin that the bedrock would be easily exposed. So if a wind comes up, then that little bit of soil gets blown away, and then you have just this rock. And so if the this, this seed falls on that kind of rocky soil, the plant may start to germinate, but then it, it doesn't get enough moisture. So when the sun comes out, then it just withers. So this soil represents a person who only receives the message superficially. He doesn't allow it to change his life. He doesn't accept the demands that the gospel places on his life. Now, he might have an initial enthusiasm. And it sort of looks like he's committing to Christ, but the commitment is so shallow, it doesn't really change his life, and he turns away from the Lord. And this happens a lot at youth camps. I mean, you know, it's, it's sort of famous. This guy was all excited, he was all gung-ho, then three months later, uh, whatever happened to him? And that happens a lot, because people get wrapped up in the enthusiasm of the moment, and maybe he wants to impress that cute girl and stuff like this. And there's all kinds of motives, but in the end, he's not really accepting the gospel is true, and there's no life transformation. Now, I became a follower of Jesus when I was 14. I went to a Billy Graham movie, and um, then I, I committed my life to Christ. I started attending a Bible study with some other high school students. And, you know, I started growing. And then something weird happened. These people started all getting Jesus t-shirts. You know, I am a Jesus freak kind of t-shirts. And that was kind of strange. And then the leader said, well, we need to go and start talking to all these strangers about Jesus. I'm thinking, well, this is getting too weird for me. I think I'm going to just kind of not come. And so pretty soon I'm not reading the Bible anymore. And I just kind of lost interest in the whole thing. And I went through several years where I sort of kind of believed in Christ, but I wasn't really following him. And that was actually the most miserable time of my life. Before I became a Christian, I was very angry. I had an alcoholic, abusive father, and I was really depressed and angry. And actually, during those years, I actually got worse. Because I'd experienced... The taste of the gospel, but then I turned away from it, and it's like I was left in my sin, and it really got bad. So um, the good news is that in my second year of university, I started reading the Bible again, and I, I got involved with some Christian friends, and we were studying together, and I started growing, and my life really changed. And then the anger 
started to be replaced by peace in, in situations that provoked me, and, and the depression became less, and there was fruit starting to take place. And so the good news of this is to say, you might be hard-hearted soil now, but that can change. You can choose what kind of soil you will be. And in my own life, I experienced kind of both situations of being hard-hearted, of resisting the word, um, and then starting to accept it and seeing my life changed. So the third soil is a soil that has thorn bushes. And in this situation, this person is drawn away from Christ by other commitments that demand his loyalty. So these days, people call these idols, things that become more important to you than Christ, and they kind of vie for your attention. Sort of these competing allegiances tend to drain away your spiritual life. And sometimes these can be things like the cares of the world, which means you're worried about everything because you want to be in control. You know anybody like that? Has to be in control at all times. And so, I mean, that's fine, except you don't make a very good God. You know, because you really aren't in control. But that's, that's one way that the worries of the world can choke out the life of God because you're basically putting yourself in the place Christ should be. You should be trusting Christ with every part of your life. Or the deceitfulness of riches. And this is a really tricky one because our culture is bombarding us all the time with a message of materialism. In fact, our economy is built on greed and envy. Did you know that? That's how capitalism works, by the way. That's what ads are always trying to do. Say, you got to have this stuff or you will not be anybody significant, you know. And it used to be it was only on television. Now we carry this propaganda with us all the time. You know, and you can't even listen to Christian music without the ad popping up on YouTube and giving you some propaganda for the, the, the ways of the world. So we have a huge battle to face because there are weeds everywhere trying to choke out the life of God. And so, you know, if you just ignore them or say, you know what, I can live with Christ, but I can also have these weeds, maybe weeds are tasty. I don't know. They do tend to choke out your vegetables, though I can tell you that from experience. Um, so weeds overcome your vegetable garden and in the same way, a hunger for wealth and power and control and material things will choke out your spiritual life. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. So you have to make your choice. And if you try to live with both, sooner or later, your life with God is going to be severely damaged. So the fourth soil is what we're aiming for. This is the good soil. And Jesus says that this person is someone whose heart is open to God, and when he hears the word of God, he responds with faith. So Jesus says that they were sown on the good soil of the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Now, to accept something means that you believe it's true. That's what that word means. So in other words, you have faith that the gospel message is the truth. And if you do that and you accept it as true, 
and you reorient your life around Christ, then Christ will change your life. And that's the fruit that he's talking about. So in Luke's version of this parable, Jesus, it really brings out the idea of faith even more. There's an interesting statement in Luke 8, 12, where Jesus says that Satan tries to steal the word of God from the hearts of those who hear the gospel so they may not believe and be saved. So you see, you're caught. Every time the gospel is preached, you're in the middle of a spiritual battle. Satan is trying to say, hey, don't listen to that. And God is saying, this is the message that will bring life. So uh, the response that Christ is looking for is to accept the truth of the message by faith, and that will change your life. So what kind of life transformation are we talking about? If you plant, say, wheat, you start with a seed of wheat, what you're going to end up with is a whole bunch of wheat, right? So 30, 60, 100-fold is the productivity that comes out of a seed. Typically in Palestine, that's what you got. Um, and so if the life of Christ is planted in your heart, what are you going to get? The character of Christ, right? Because think of what Paul says when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. That means the Holy Spirit is in the life of every believer, and what does he produce? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and then he's got a big etc. He says, and things like these, these are the characteristics, the moral characteristics of God. And when the life of God is received in your heart, it will change your life, so you begin to grow in these areas. And another example of this is um, in John 15. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So what he means is, you cannot fake it and produce righteous character. You can act Christian, but if God has not changed your inner heart, there's no real life there. And you can only fake it for so long. So what God is looking for is the life of God which we received, planted in our hearts, and then God transforms us and produces this kind of fruit. So another way to look at this is the spiritual fruit is evidence of life. You have a healthy plant, it grows up, produces fruit, that's its normal life cycle, it produces grain. And so some will bear more fruit than others, that's why he says 36 to 100 fold. The point is, some people, it's like they receive Christ and then, wow, they never want to drink again. You know, they go off drugs, whatever it is, and they're just like, wow, whatever happened to that person, totally transformed. Other people struggle for years with the same thing. And all of us, I think, are a mix of both. There are some areas which, once we start following Christ, we find it's pretty easy, you know, God just changed that desire. And other areas, it requires constant attention and focus on Christ, and we just live moment by moment in dependency on him and saying, 
God, I can't do this without you. Which is actually a good place to be in, you know. It's living by faith. It's trusting that God will change you. And that's really the point of the parable, is that God is the one that produces the spiritual fruit. Um, I described earlier that my spiritual life really took off while I was in college. And um, God gave me a gift that I didn't really want. <laughs> but that was one summer I lost my job. And you know, when you're in college, you have to work every summer to somehow survive so you don't get big student loans. And I lost my job that summer. I couldn't find another one. It was during a recession. And so I moved out of my apartment and, and lived with my parents. And the gift was my parents saw what was happening in my life. They saw the change. And they started asking questions like, you're not getting as angry. What's going on here? You know, you're not so depressed. Things are changing. How do you change? We were really worried about you. What happened? And so that led to all kinds of spiritual conversations. And I had the opportunity of leading both of my parents to the Lord. My father was about 50. He was an alcoholic. It changed him. You know, his anger started changing. I mean, he was deeply damaged, but God produced fruit and transformation in his life. And my mother became this incredible evangelist, like she talked to anybody. And I've got all kinds of spiritual grandkids everywhere, you know, that my mother led to the Lord. And that was how the fruit manifested in her life. So the fact that people saw the transformed character in my life led to the effectiveness of gospel witness. It's that fruit that shows that the life of Christ is at work in your heart. So here's the question. Jesus could have said all this in more direct language. And, you know, Americans like to be really direct. We want you to just tell it like it is. That's an American thing. Middle Easterners, they like stories. They want to tell things indirectly. But why did Jesus use parables? Well, there's kind of two things going on here. On one level, a parable clarifies because it's an analogy or a comparison. And it shows you something that you can go, oh, I just learned something about God or about salvation from this story. So it does clarify. But there's a surprising thing that happens when a person hears a parable. And Jesus describes this in Mark 4, 10 through 13. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you, that is my disciples, has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now here's the critical question, and watch this question. He said to them, do you understand this parable? If you don't, you won't understand any of the parables. So why do you say that? Because if you understand, you're on the inside. If you don't understand, you're on the outside. To put it in other language, you understand the message of Jesus and accept it as true, you're saved. If you don't get it, you're not saved. So what the parable does is both clarify and act as judgment at the same time. Because it reveals what's in a person's heart. 
And you might say, well, wait a minute. There are a lot of parables I don't understand. A lot of them are tricky and complicated. Well, you notice what the disciples did? They asked Jesus, what does this mean? Tell us what this parable means. That's the best thing you can do. Ask Jesus, I don't understand. Help me to understand this passage of the Bible. Ask him. He wants to show you. Because he wants you to obey it. So a person asks that when their heart is open and they want to grow. So in other words, they're good soil. And the fact that they're good soil is shown by their inquiry to dig in and to understand the message of God. But a person that doesn't want to do what the message of God says is looking for all kinds of excuses. And believe me, a lot of the excuses are actually that they don't want to change their life. They've got their pet sins, they don't want to give them up. And that's the number one reason most people reject the gospel, not that it's not compelling and a wonderful story and all this. They just don't want to change. Their hearts are hard. So what a parable does is reveal what a person is about. And he said, to you has been given the mysteries of the kingdom, or the secrets of the kingdom, it says in the NIV, or the ESV. And it, uh, this is a long story, and we're going to get to this idea of the secrets of the kingdom in coming parables, but I'll just give you a preview of coming attractions. A secret is part of God's plan that he had never told anybody, but now he's revealing. So in the Old Testament, there were things that he didn't tell us, but now in Christ he's telling them. And here's the first secret. Jews assumed that just by being a descendant of Abraham, they were automatically in the kingdom of God. So whenever the Messiah would come, they got their e-ticket, they get to take that ride, they're, they're in the kingdom. But that's not true. Because John the Baptist come and said to the Jews, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and be baptized just like a Gentile would, showing that they have turned their life to God. So Jews were in no better place than Gentiles when it came to the kingdom. Everyone needed to turn to God and trust in the Messiah. And so Jesus adds to this by saying, you have to receive the message I'm giving. You have to accept the gospel by faith as true. Otherwise, you're not in the kingdom. So the secret of the kingdom is, it's not automatic. You have to accept the gospel. And there are other things that Jesus is going to explain are different aspects of the secret of the kingdom. But that's the first one. And, the, and that's probably the most important. Because it all revolves around how you respond to Jesus. So the parables then uh, actually make pretty clear what kind of a person you are. So... Let's think about a few applications for today. Because this parable says that we're accountable for our response to the message of Jesus. It is our response to the gospel that determines whether we'll have eternal life in the kingdom of God. Now there's a lot of excuses people can make for not following Christ. And this parable sort of lays out some really common ones. Some people are just hard in other words, they're resistant. They don't want to explore. They don't want to make the moral change the gospel demands. Um, 
other people are just too embarrassed to be around weird Christians. And that's right. A lot of us are pretty weird. Actually, we're all weird. So, so and, and frankly, we add to the problem because sometimes Christians say things on social media that don't, I'm not really the best representative of Christ, and they do stuff that, like, people go, oh, man, those Christians, I don't want anything to do with them. So my advice is, if you find Christians weird, that's fine, but read about Jesus because Jesus is not weird. Jesus is amazing. So focus on Jesus, learn about him. That's who we're following anyway. And the other thing is that for some people, they just love success and power and fame and they want to be the center of attention. And these kinds of things are so compelling that it's hard for someone to humble themselves and say, I need Jesus. To say that you're not in control, that you don't have the best retirement plan and you have total control of the future. I mean, that that's takes humility. Say, I need Jesus. And that's the starting place always for salvation. And um, Jim Elliott was a missionary in Ecuador. He was martyred for Christ at the only age of 29. But his journal recorded a very wise reflection on this kind of temptation. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The eternal joy you will have as a follower of Jesus is far greater than anything you might have to give up to follow him. And the parable shows there are a lot of ways to be lost, but there's only one way to be saved, and that is by believing in Jesus. But if you are a follower of Jesus, this parable still reminds us that we have accountability every time we hear the message of God. Every time you read scripture, you hear a Christian song, you hear a sermon, you are at a decision point. And whether you choose to listen to it and respond to it, or you find excuses and say, yeah, that's too hard, or that's too strange, or I'd be too embarrassed to do that, or I've got these other things that are more important to me, Every time you make that choice, you are like one of those soils, and the Word of God is not bearing fruit in your life. And there's examples in Scripture of people that persisted on that path, and it choked out the life of God in them. So you have that decision to make all the time, every time you hear Scripture. And so Jesus challenges us to wholehearted discipleship that transform our lives. Uh, but there are people that attend church and appear to be saved, but aren't. And the problem is, it isn't always easy to tell. That's why the final determiner is the day of judgment. That's the harvest, when the crops will be examined to see if they were productive. And God, of course, is the one who will make that final determination. If you say that you believe in Jesus, but your life is indistinguishable, from what it was before you made that commitment, then you maybe didn't really make a commitment to Christ. It might be that you're still lost. So this is something you have to examine your own heart and say, has God changed anything? Because 
if the seed has borne fruit in your heart, it will change your life. It cannot help but change your life if you're accepting the truth of the message. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. It's an interesting metaphor. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Of course not. You go to Home Depot, you buy a lemon tree. It's beautiful. You dig a hole in the hard soil, you plant it in the ground. Six months later, you've got little orange round things on it. That's not a lemon tree. You got an orange tree. And no matter what the package says, it's the fruit that shows the life of the tree. Many people claim to believe in Jesus, but they've never established a firm foundation of discipleship. The only person Jesus praises in this parable is the person whose life is transformed by a wholehearted and undivided commitment to Jesus. This person bears spiritual fruit. I read about former President Jimmy Carter visiting an Amish community and he visited this. Now, the Amish, I don't know if you know about this, but they're in the Anabaptist tradition, just like Baptists. Historically, they're branched, but they have a deep commitment to Christian community and to following the teachings of Scripture. And the president asked one of the Amish men, are you a Christian? So the man stood there in silence, and he started writing on a piece of paper. And then he handed the paper to the president, and the paper had a list of names on it. And he said, these are the people that know me. Go ask them that question. They will know the truth about me. So my prayer is that that fruit of the work of God in your life would be so obvious people would be drawn to Jesus and say, something has changed in you. I want that. That is the fruit that brings glory to God, and that's what we ought to be seeking. If we accept the truth of Scripture, it will change our lives. Let's have a moment of silent reflection, and I'd like for you to pray to God. Are there areas in your heart that you have resisted God, and that hardness is preventing his word from changing you? Or are there spiritual distractions that are weakening your relationship with God? Ask God to point that out and ask him to change that area of your heart. Our Father God, we know that Jesus said, without me you can do nothing, and we are increasingly aware of that. I pray for each person here, every person that hears this video will recognize their need for Christ, will accept the truth of the gospel, and on a day-by-day -day basis, will see you produce more and more fruit. I pray that for this church, that people in the community would notice the fruit and would be drawn to Jesus because of that. We pray in Christ's name for his glory.